Hello and welcome back to ACFM, the home of the weird left. This is producer Matt, just popping up to let you know that on the 25th to the 28th of September, that's in about a fortnight from when this episode will go out, ACFM will be at the World Transform Festival down in Brighton. We'll be doing a live show on the Ecology of Solidarities on Tuesday nights, it's right at the end of the festival. If you've got a ticket, we'll see you there. If you haven't got a ticket yet, there's a few left, so be sure to snap one up before they're all gone. Myself and Chal, my co-producer, will also be um, around the festival doing a few things and there's going to be loads and loads of great stuff that you'd expect from our friends over at the World Transform. So get a ticket before they all run out. Also, while I'm here, just a reminder that if you're listening to this show, you're listening on a podcast app where we are beholden to strict licensing laws, meaning we can only play 30 second clips of the music you hear in the show. But if you head on over to the Novara website, and stream from SoundCloud, you will get a show that is richer, fuller, denser, more hallucinogenic, more psychedelic than you're getting here. It's the full heroic dose of ACFM. But of course, if you're listening here, you'll still get all the great conversation and acid insights from Nadia, Kier and Jeremy. It's your choice. Okay, on with the show. This is Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert and I'm joined as usual by my friends Nadia Idle. Hello. And Keir Milburn. Hello. And today we are talking about space. Space is a word with a lot of different meanings and we're going to sort of try to cover many of them, aren't we? And we thought we'd start off just by talking for a bit about, well, what do we even mean by the term space? So Nadia, it was your idea. So what did you, I mean? What did you even mean when you said we should talk about space? So I've always really been interested in space in the sense of the built environment, the way we move around the landscape, and how that affects how we feel and organize and meet other people. Um, and that's why I was really interested in doing that that interview with Pooja, but. I'm also interested by what's happened and, you know, what's related to that in terms of what's happened after the pandemic and how we relate in smaller spaces in our homes um, and in our neighborhoods. But I'm also interested with how that intersects with the, the kind of the space in our head, going back to the therapy um, edition that we're talking about. Like how, how do all of these different conceptions of space make us the people who we are and what's, what effect does it have on politics. And obviously this also leads into talking about, which I think we're going to talk about a bit later, um, what public space is and how those kind of different forms of built environment um, are attached to kind of different sets of rights and politics. So that's kind of my spirally summary of why I'm interested in space. And I'm not so interested in outer space, but I've become more interested since we've discussed this, uh, this podcast. What about you guys? I think you can link um, uh, thinking about outer space with thinking about earthly space. 
uh, because so the you're right, right? The pandemic and social distancing and all the effects of the pandemic, like working from home and more retail going more and more online, etc. This is all having an effect on our relationship to lived our lived relationship to space, what we might call earthly space. If one, yeah, outer space and earthly space, and they're linked by. We don't want to just talk about the physical space. We want to talk about our imaginary relationship to our lived experience of space to put it in a Althusserian uh, sort of way. So that's why I think it is related to outer space. Because because one of the reasons we were talking, uh, uh, we might want to think about why why talk about space now is partly because COVID's changed our relationship to space. But at the same time as that's going on, you've got people like Jeff Bezos and um, Richard Branson actually going into outer space. And that there's something strange going on with that, right? There's something strange about what is the imaginary role that outer space is playing and how is it related to our experience of earthly space, which is changing at the moment? Yeah, I think that's all right. And of course, I mean, space is historically is a really kind of difficult concept in some ways, philosophically. Yeah, the, the nature of space is something people have worried about and how, how you distinguish space from time, you know, is is space just everything that extends is it is it just extension is it just is it even at properly differentiable from time or is space time just one single phenomenon for kant space and time are the two sort of the the key transcendental categories which we have to have some concept of to even be able to start thinking but i think it's interesting it can be a really abstract concept but it can also you know it also has very concrete implications there's been quite a lot of social movements which sort of circulate around who has access to space. So so one of the things that's going on in the UK at the moment is that house prices are going absolutely through the roof, astronomical even, in the outer space register. Um, and part of what people think is behind that, or part of what's driving that, is that people are spending more and more time at home, and they're thinking, we want to... We want more space, actually. If I'm going to spend this much time at home, working from home, I want more space, so I'm going to get a bigger house. And that's one of the things that's that's been been driving it. But there's also lots of social movements around around who are, who who has access to public space. Uh, we we had the the murder of Sarah Everard uh, in in the summer, and then the the sort of reclaim the night protest that sparked up around that, uh, which harked back to uh, reclaim the night protests in, in the 1970s, starting in Leeds actually around the Yorkshire Ripper. Uh, murders and the police saying that women should stay in the house to stay safe and women said uh no <laughs> why didn't you get men to stay in the house and there was a resurgence of that movement and that went into the the whole uh, kill the bill sort of mo- movement about well you know do, will we have the right to assembly right that seems to be being removed from us that key thing of of, of proximity the key role of proximity in politics basically the ability to come together uh, and of course, related to that is Black Lives Matter movement or the movement for Black Lives, which has swept across several countries in several waves. And what's that about? That's also about who has access to space, isn't it? Who can, who is able to walk down the street without getting harassed by the police or, in fact, killed by the police? So you can see, in fact, space. Uh, who has access to space? Um, what space do people need? How do we relate to it? You know, once you start to get into it, it seems to be uh, a quite a current. Uh, issue and, and an interesting way into a series of debates. I think that's why we want to discuss it. Yeah, totally. And I think and I think it's important to point out with that excellent list that you made there, Kia, is that, you know, when we're talking about these things, we're talking about space. I mean, it's hard to sort of pin down space and say, like, in a literal sense, but also, you know, space is is one of those terms that 
uh, can also be used in a kind of postmodern sense in the way that violence has been, in my view, bastardized as well. And people say, you know, you saying this or that is violent, when in actual fact, what we're talking about here is actual violence, physical violence that people are um, on the receiving end of, in particular, actual physical spaces. And when we say that there are people, different sorts of people, you know, and w whether it's women or black people, etc., who've not been able to walk down certain streets without being um, uh, at risk, then, you know, it's a very real thing. So what does that do to populations and what does that do to communities and what does it do for our, our ability to organize, but also just move around the place and socialize. And I think that question of how people view the street and the square and arguably the circus, I know as we, at time of recording, um, Extinction Rebellion are in Oxford Circus in London at the moment. Um, so I thought I'd throw circus in there with the squares as well. But whether people, how people feel about those spaces and whether they feel that they are something that belong to them, places that they can and want to hang out, or if they kind of belong to the state or private capital. And I think that's a really interesting um, way that we can we can discuss freedom to assembly as well. Yeah, because it's also about ownership, isn't it? It's like this, there, there are imaginary relationships to space. They overlap with like uh, legal rights to to, to space to land, etc. So we can also talk about things such as the idea of public ownership, public land, perhaps common ownership, commons, the commons as a form of land, and of course, private ownership and, uh, and private land. So I think we should we should bring all of those in and discuss all of them, but we should do it in a nice, neat way <laughs> that makes sense. So over to you, Jeremy. <laughs> well, maybe we should first start with the problem that you, I think you posed before when I was here about whether historically the political left has had a tr has a, has a problem with even thinking about space. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I wanted to pose that question. Yeah, you're right, and it's and it, I think it trickles down to even the way that a lot of the time the left organise um, here, you know, in the 21st century. And Kia's right to point out that you know it's a really a kind of uh, it's a it's a it's a sharp, uh, hot campaign issue and movement issue at the moment, like housing, but. In a way, it's, it seems like the discourse around it isn't about uh, we want good spaces. We are demanding, you know, good, beautiful, uh, em em empowering, aesthetically pleasing spaces, whether it's in our homes and in, in the public. So even though people might like these things, I don't think it's part of the left discourse. So that was the question that interested me. But yeah, please talk a little bit more about it in terms of the, the history, please. Well, I think that's an interesting example, the one you just gave. So, I mean, some people might say, I'm not saying I would really go along with this in such simplistic terms, but some people would argue that indeed, historically, it's kind of left thought, it's kind of preoccupied with time. I mean, partly because, you know, it comes out of the Enlightenment. You know, it's, it's interested in the future. It's interested in modernity. The labour theory of value, the whole kind of Marxist theory of exploitation is really about the exploitation of time about you know people having to buy and sell their time and people having access to other people's time and it's not really and in some ways the argument would say that the left has historically not been that good at thinking about space and that i mean the rent issue is really interesting there actually because it's true so at least in this country you know renters rights are really tend to be kind of bundled up with a set of issues which are to do with for example 
you know, the fact that people people don't want to have to give loads of money to landlords because they want to be able to keep more of their money or save it up. People want to be able to buy a house because it gives them a sense of permanence and it gives them a way, a sense that their own money is then being invested in their future. And you can make an argument. These are all ways of thinking about those issues more in terms of time than, than in terms of space, in terms of the question of actually just having somewhere to live. I mean, it's sort of true. It's kind of interesting. But then I think I think if you try to put it in those terms, I would say I think things quickly break down a bit. I mean, I think, for example, it's quite clear that renters' politics in Britain now is partly about questions of space. It's about the city. It's about who gets to be there, who gets to live there, and, and do you have to go somewhere else? And I think this debate over sort of over sort of spatial, you know, thinking in spatial terms, thinking in temporal terms, it goes back at least to Henri Lefebvre, you know, the great uh, French thinker, philosopher, historian, and his book, The Production of Space. And and Lefebvre, for example, sort of argues that the left hasn't really thought enough about space. I guess what's good, there's a lot of this going on. There's a lot of this going on in the, in the 60s and 70s, though, isn't there? There's people like Foucault writing about prisons and there's a general kind of concern with you know the way in which power is exercised in a you know in the urban context or in buildings in a kind of spatial way and there's the psychogeographers and the situationists and all of those all of that stuff's going on and and the, and the drifts and the yeah stuff. yeah exactly yeah there's already been all that stuff I think it's partly it's seen as being an issue that's been a bit neglected in philosophy, though I think in some strands of French um, thought that didn't become that famous in the English-speaking world. I think in the sort of mid twentieth century, there were some uh, there were people like Conguiem and Bachelard. I think were interested in space as well, actually. So I'm not sure how well this argument that it's sort of neglected ever really stands up because it comes up again with the sort of radicalization of geography from the sort of 80s onwards so you have figures like David Harvey who sort of starts off life as a critical geographer and just ends up becoming probably the most famous kind of Marxist scholar of his generation after Frederick Jameson in the English-speaking world and then in the early 2000s the great British uh, radical geographer and political theorist Doreen Massey published her book For Space which is kind of again sort of an argument for taking space seriously against a, a certain claim that people haven't really taken it seriously I guess what they're reacting to is, for example, people like Ernesto Leclos, I know at, at some point in his work, talks about the spatialization of politics. And mm-hmm. it's sort of seen as being in some ways always a retreat from a, you know, a politics that makes a claim on the future. And I mean, it was a concept I used actually in sort of really early work in the early 90s when I was sort of thinking about the way in which a certain kind of resignation uh, had kind of characterised the politics of my generation, sort of after the, the great defeats of the left in the eighties, and after the sort of end of punk, the long wave of punk and that stuff. And I thought, well, now what are we doing? We're we're, we're squ- you know we're defending squats. We're we're trying to stop roads being built. We're having raves, and it it seemed to be a sort of politics of space, which in some ways was kind of exciting, but in other ways was you know, a reaction to the fact that we'd, we'd, we'd precisely given up on any sense that we could actually affect the future in any meaningful way. So it was just a sort of politics of the present or a politics of defence in some ways. So there's, there is a sort of back and forth historically between seeing largely talking about the, the, the whole concept of space in, in 
sort of negative terms. You can think of Deleuze and Guattari as well, actually. Like territory is like bad, basically, in really vulgar terms. I mean, that's not really what they mean, but it's easy to read them that way. And that's how they've often been read. Like territorialization is the name they give to almost any process by which a set of power relationships get, gets fixed. And then deterritorialization is, you know, what happens when those power relationships get dislocated, mobilized. And obviously, as their work develops, it becomes completely impossible to, to really sustain those. It's just a sort of good, bad binary. But nonetheless, you know, that is sort of there in, in the language. So that's also another example in some ways of, of sort of, you know, somehow, you know, space is bad. It's, a, it's associated with, you know, stasis as opposed to being associated with change. And then, you, you know, there's a sort of parallel tradition going back to philosophers like Henri Bergson. His word for the experience of time is duration, and duration is always characterised by change, and change is good. Change is what we sort of want. And again, that would be a kind of gross simplification of Bergson, but that's kind of how some people have taken it. But what's interesting about that is that time is, I think, in, in those terms that you've just defined, Jeremy, like time is a lot more abstract. Like going back to the territorial uh, point or language, you know, it's much easier to think about defending space than it is about defending time. Much easier in terms of, a re you know, well, yeah, in terms I, of both I, the arguments that are made and in reality of how people move around the world, right? Look, I, well, I completely agree. And I just, I don't really think there ever has been anyone who's actually thought, oh, well, it, it should be all about time and not space, or it should be all about space and not time. But if you want to understand why some people have sort of thought, some other people have thought about it that way, well, think about this. You're right. Of course, it's easy to think of defending space rather than defending time. But in the 19th and 20th centuries, you know, who defends space? Well, it's, it's nationalists. Nationalism is a politics about defending space. Who defends time? It's the labour movement. It's the workers' movement trying to trying to raise wages and lower the working, you know, shorten the working week. So it, it's the fact that it's really simple and easy to understand the idea of defending space, and it's not so easy to understand the the, um, the concept of defending time. This is one of the things which always gives the sort of the nationalism an advantage over socialism. But socialism is always trying to get people to think in terms of defending time rather than just defending space, if you see what I mean. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. I'd never really quite thought in those terms before. So that is a reason why space ends up being a sort of a negatively marked term in, in certain strands of the radical tradition. But then periodically, people like Henri Lefebvre, people like Doreen Massey, they have to sort of pop up and remind us, actually, you know, we have to think about space and we have to recognise that space is political and politicised and power relations operate in a spatial dy dynamic all the time. And if we, we can't just allow, we can't just let conservatives think about that. And that, you know, you've said to me before, Nadia, you know, it's a problem. I think we might have said on the show, we might have just said when we were talking about these issues, well, you know, and it's a bit of a cliche in, in some circles that, you know, the left is not good at thinking about place. You know, the left doesn't get yeah. people to think in terms of the, the identities and, and attachments that they, that they form in relation to particular places. Well, I mean, I just, I just think that people, I, I don't really have a over-sophisticated conception beyond that, really. But just the fact that the terms in which, you know, like even Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, etc., um, didn't seem to have the terms to deal with the fact that people live in actual spaces and they have attachment to those places. And the vast majority of people actually don't move very far from where they were born. 
in the UK, despite all of the immigration and migration, etc. There's a shitload of people who don't actually, they want to remain close to other people who they know who grew up in that area. And that's a phenomenon. A lot of people are forced to move because of work or because of uh, um, displacement, etc. But but pe- people, I don't think it correlates, I guess this is my argument, I don't think it correlates with parochialism and nimbyism and small-mindedness that people feel the need to want to protect or be around a specific area. So when that area is, um, or when those spaces are under attack in various different forms or perceived to be under attack, they have certain reactions, which I think the right is much better on capitalizing on than the left. It is interesting, though, that... um like munis- the municipal level and municipalism, it's quite a big thing on the left. Like there's this lot of like new municipalism in, in particularly in southern Europe, in Spain, and then uh, in France, and then recently actually it's it's moved across a, a municipalist project that's just taken over uh, uh, the city council of Zagreb, so it's gone into sort of eastern Europe as well. Uh, yeah, to be fair, I was speaking about the UK discourses in the UK. You are right. Yeah, no, so but so. I think it's I think it's also true in the UK as well. If you think about like the Preston model, community wealth building, you know, there, there is something there about like the city is is the right level for politics, and it's to do with this idea that like you need proximity for 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 democratic politics to work in a way. Uh, and so it's not sexy, though, is it? Um. <laughs> I mean, it's not though. This is the thing, and I don't, and I don't mean, I, I don't mean that to like talk down at it. I just think there just is a disjoint between the, the people's emotions around space and the whole mm. chat about municipalism. I'm not saying that stuff isn't good and really important, but I don't, I just don't think those two things are are are, are being linked up politically. I don't know. I mean, that's my view. It gets me off, but then I'm a very strange man. Right, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Perhaps one way to think about it was just to extend Jeremy's argument earlier about like right, linking space to stasis, and that it be that that being more of a sort of leading it to to, to be open to right wing arguments. Is that the other reason that the that the left is concerned with temporality or, or, or has got like temporal aspects to its to its politics sort of built in is is because um, because we want to move from the way the world is now to some uh, to a different form of organisation in the future so there's this problem of transition right we want to move from how things are to a different sort of future and so a lot of left politics is is around that that orientation towards the future and the need to 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 bring an anticipation of a different kind of future into our action in the present right that that there's a temporal dimension built into the left Uh, but I don't think that that should be opposed to, to like spatial considerations. Uh, but totally, when people are saying, I want a better future, they're not necessarily saying, I want to get out of here. They're saying, I want here to be better. That's my argument. Well, yeah, but here can be spatial or temporal. It? <laughs> but yeah. No, so no, I'm saying yeah, that yeah, when probably. we're talking about like, so I get that. I get that talking about change and, you know, the kind of capital pre progress which the left identified with in the 20th century definitely before you know climate change and all of these things hit all of those big issues kind of that change the way we 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 look at politics it it was that kind of thinking about the future but i'm not but i'm not sure how it was linked to the the place we're in like how that works now like i think and i think you know and i tried to 
touch on this when I spoke to to Pooja in the in the microdose of there there was a lot of like you know the the the, the government had um, funded all of these kind of big thinking projects in Europe and definitely the UK in terms of how spaces could be designed and how cities could be reimagined all of that there's a lot of that 20th century kind of like big imaginary thinking that you know led to some amazing like built environments in in uh, the UK but I'm trying to think of how that spatial um aspect links up with how people are doing activism sunra space is the place is the afrofuturist anthem it is the great evocation of the idea of outer space as a, a place of imaginative possibility a place of imagined emancipation and liberation i think it's a you know it's an extraordinary piece of music from an extraordinary artist it's very very acid and I think most of the music we're talking about today is going to have a sort of outer space theme. Space is the place. Space is the place. Space is the place. Yes, space is the place. Outer space is a pleasant place. A place that's Basically, my day job is involved in this sort of stuff these days. And like part of this, part of the thing I've, I've been doing is me and uh, a couple of friends, Bertie Russell and Kai Heron, we've been working with this idea of public common partnerships, which is a, a reverse engineer of public private partnerships, of which PFIs are a one version, etc. And so public private partnerships are those where the state basically gives private in- enterprises lots of money and like contracts for these things took to run sort of public services etc and it's really it's been pretty disastrous it, you know they basically it's, it's a way of like offloading um uh, public procurement and building infrastructure uh, onto future taxpayers ah temporal thing you say um <laughs> so public common partnerships is sort of a reverse engineer of that where the where that where you've got a public the public body is working with what we call a commons association so that might be like a workers' co-op or or a, a project to bring sort of land into common ownership. That's what we've been working on recently, and we've been sort of developing developing models where 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 people can uh, develop or, or try to bring more and more areas of life into sort of the the common sector, the sort of cooperative sector, and out of the public sector. We should probably talk a little bit in a moment about how we distinguish those th- those things anyway my point is with, with the work i've been doing with with bert and kai is that like that's not reliant on control over local government you this can this can take place you know just by 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 people getting together and deciding they want to do something uh, and they want to form a, a sort of cooperative or common project to do it um so one of the places we've been working with is the the latin village market in in tottenham so it's the save latin village campaign is like really it's quite well known i think and the really great thing is um quite recently tottenham in london we should say tottenham in london yeah apart from uh, no, uh, yes tottenham in london for our our non-uk listeners so save latin village has been this campaign to to, to, to stop this urban development a really classic urban development where the private developers are going to fucking knock down a load of things that people use like a market and they're going to build like private housing with no affordable housing all of that basically we all know that model of development urban development 
basically they, they've the the market traders and their allies have basically fought this for 17 years and they basically won last week the gentrifying developers have pulled out and yeah it's a really great victory and so and even the council said oh we're gonna we're gonna back the common plan so they've had a they've had a community plan that they've developed and that's got a public common partnership thing in it and part of what we developed in that is it's sort of like this thing about where you can use space and you can add a temporal dimension to it how about that uh, so basically, the surplus from from this the operation of the market, the market will be brought into common ownership, and the surplus from that, the running of that market, will go into to starting new common projects or new public common partnerships, and then the, the the surplus from from those will come back and they'll be used to start new public common partnerships. So it's a, it's a sort of designing in a sort of self expansive dynamic of self governance, if you want, right? But isn't everything hedged against these projects? Like, don't councils actually, aren't they incentivized because of their material conditions and the way that they're structured and way relationships are built internal to councils? I mean, am I just really cynical? I just can't see councils supporting this sort of stuff in general. Well, I mean, uh, if you wanted to give, to be fair to councils and be probably over fair to councils, they've not really had a choice but to work with like these private, big, huge, massive private developers because who else are they going to do it with they've got a problem which is things are set up to, to disincentivize public building or there's a, a trend towards building like new council houses etc but things are sort of set up against that such as people having the right to buy a council house so this sort of like this sort of like community-led or people-led development is sort of we're going to see basically whether whether councils are going to go for it, but it seems to be that people are interested in it at the moment because the urban model of development, which is based on re- rising real estate prices, basically you building um, shopping centres and uh, office space, right? That's not really going to work, right? If people are buying, uh, uh, are doing online retail and their office space is shrinking and 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 rents for office or commercial rents are really dropping because because people are tending to work from home more. And so businesses are thinking, great, great. I can save a bit of money here by, by shrinking the office and have people come in just part-time, et cetera, et cetera. So basically there's a, there's this, this complete crisis around high streets and, and, and town centers. Why, why are people going to come into high streets? Why are people going to come into town centers if they're not going to do shopping, et cetera? To meet each other. Yeah. Well, in that case, you're going to need some sort of re reconfiguration of space, basically, in order to facilitate that. And so that's what these, this sort of like this, this model of development we've been sort of working on. So one of the other projects we're working on is this land banking project, where there's a street in Plymouth where people want to buy the whole street, bring it into common ownership. And their, their problem is this, if they buy the whole street and, or they start to do community activism, property prices will rise. And the people who basically sat on these land bank, these sat on these assets and not and underdeveloped them. Uh, they're the ones who are going to get the benefits. So basically, this is this. There's an idea that you use a sort of public common partnership to basically produce a land bank, and then that land bank is attached to this commons, who uh, which is like a democratic forum in which you can democratically decide what you're going to use these buildings for and how the street's going to develop. It's this problem, right? If you're not going to decide the use of resources and assets through the market, then what are you going to do? There's only one way to do that, and that's democratic planning, right? That's that sort of model, basically. And the, the the sort of wager, the sort of roll of the dice is if you put a lot of things at stake, i.e., you know, join this Commons Association and you will have control over all of these buildings on the street, that will put enough at stake 
that people will suddenly think participation in these sort of democratic structures is worth it because immediately they can control what's going on in their neighborhood. Anyway, that's what I've been doing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Public Commons partnerships are a really interesting idea from my point of view, because partly because they're trying to overcome, well, not overcome, but play creatively with the sort of conceptual distinction between the public and the commons, which comes out of Hart and Negri, comes out of, you know, Michael Hart and uh, Antonio Negri's work. I mean, they're interesting figures for this discussion. I was thinking about them earlier. One of the most provocative things they ever said in their book, uh, I think it's in the book Multitude, they said, oh, well, we should really, you know, radical forces should valorize, you know, migrancy. We should see, we should see the migrant as a kind of precisely in their kind of, you know, entrepreneurial creativity as a kind of figure of change and as somebody we should sort of valorize. And that is, you know, meaning that what we should value them. And it's a kind of reaction against the kind of thinking that I was referring to earlier that, that sees migrancy as a sort of capitalist phenomenon. And, you know, and, um, it's kind of interesting. I mean, obviously, these days, you know, migration, the vast majority of the migration is experienced, I think, by the people who engage in it as sort of at least semi-forced. You know, it's very ambivalent. You know, people experience it as something they have to do, but also something they might want to do. And either way, you know, solidarity with migrants is really central to any kind of contemporary radical politics. But Hart and Negri kind of have really interesting ways of thinking about those things. So they... They're, they're sort of challenged to that notion that the migrant is just a sort of capitalist entrepreneur. It's quite interesting. It's a bizarre concept, I think, pushing it that far. But yeah, I remember that from the multitudes. Well, I mean, when I taught it to students, like nobody liked it because, like, including because basically most of the stu- lots of students in the room when I was teaching it when it first came out were people whose parents had been migrants. It sounds crass. And I would have to say, in all honesty, like not one of them had a story according to which their migrancy was com- was completely freely chosen and sort of heroically entrepreneurial. Like it was just not, yeah, you know, not. it wasn't. They hadn't. They they felt forced to do it, and they were sort of even people who'd been economically really successful. You know, yeah. Are you always? Yeah, yeah. People tend to move in in those kind of ways under you know from it's a it's a stick. There will be a stick as much as there is a carrot. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's so. Anyway, I've sort of gone off with them a bit, but also and another kind of you know contentious claim of theirs. I mean, this really comes from Antonio Negri's work is this idea that will. I mean, he does say at some point that the commons is completely opposed to the public, and the public is like the domain of the state. And, and you know, and um, whereas the commons is kind of always outside the state, and it's something that you know the state, like capital, is sort of parasitic upon the commons or sort of suppressing the commons. And I was always really critical of that because I think you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, apart from anything else, you know, Negri's politics come from the very specific experience of the Italian left, where, and and the and the sort of very high levels of corruption in the public sector, like the massive disillusion. With both the socialist and, and communist parties, you know, and it was, and it always seemed like a kind of a useless distinction in Britain, where we're just sort of trying to defend the public. Yeah, isn't it mostly semantics? I mean, when it comes to talking about the context that we've just been talking about, yeah, in, in Britain. I mean, that's how I feel. I'd extend that actually. I know a lot of people disagree with this. We'll extend it to you know left critiques of the point of when people bring up citizens, try and get people to think about citizens, not consumers. Then there's 
as citizens rather than consumers. And there's this very, very strong critique of the, the concept of the citizen because it doesn't include migrants. Like we're not thinking about it in that kind of crass form because the, I think the concept of citizen can also be really useful when talking about public or commons. Well, to me, well, I got I've, I got widely accused by a far leftist as, a, of, as being a stagist uh, for after the interview I did on politics theory other recently. A stagist is somebody who thinks that, you know, political struggle moves in stages rather than just happening whenever you want it um so in that sense i am a statist and i think i think there yeah there are different sort of stages there are different political moments and historical moments there are historical moments if you're in russia in 1917 and and you're you know and the bolsheviks are like the most powerful force you know especially amongst the youth and the soldiers then maybe you're at the point where you can say oh we don't even we don't need to be citizens in the kind of bourgeois sense we're workers you know we're members of the soviet and part of the workers international but if you're in a situation where most people can't even think of themselves as ordinary just participants in civic life they can only think of themselves either as subjects of an aristocracy or as as consumers of services then then citizenship is a significant advance on that isn't um isn't stagism though that um all struggles have to go through a certain development of stage which is why you're not a stagist actually <laughs> right yeah no it is really yeah we're not getting. We're, we're getting down a completely different track here, you know. <laughs> do, you know, I, I do. I, I am on some level. I am a stagist in that I think we're not. I think there are hard limits on socialism before you know capitalism is kind of you know industrial. You know, industrialization has reached certain levels around the world, but that's a different debate. It's a really interesting way of thinking about it that you guys have come up with. That instead of saying the public is bad, the commons is good, and, and they're, res, they're, they're as opposed as like the public and the private are, the commons and the private are. You're saying, well, they do, con the terms do refer to sort of different domains. You know, the commons is, this, is the sort of the domain of free association and free collaboration, you know, outside, you know, that isn't dependent upon state structures or capital. And then the public is the sort of the domain of, you know, the, the state to some extent. And then but it does depend on who the agent is that we're talking about, that we're trying to move here. If we're at the level of like theory and even public policy and, you know, municipalism, then we can making, be making those distinctions. But if you're at the point of thinking about, you know, the average person or, you know, like group of people now in 2021, where you haven't even, we've got such a rudimentary issue with people conceptualizing the way they exist in public, let alone whether the space is public or private and whether they have a right to it or not. Like we're talking about a really kind of basic, like being stuck inside the capitalist realist bubble here. That's what we're talking about. So, so then on, on that level, like I don't care whether you call it public or commons or, you know, citizen or not. We're trying to open that space as opposed to um, private, I mean. I think one one way to think through that that bit though is like if you're going to define the public, there probably is the state at some level it, it is involved. But like if you think about public ownership, right, that means that like you know the public own that, and um, the public is basically everybody who is in that particular level of the state at which the public is. So everybody in the city of London, for instance, would own whatever whatever's public. The Commons is something like it's not just common ownership. It has to be common governance as well. So public services can be democratised, but they don't have to be. Common common ownership sort of does have to be uh, democratised. And, and, so, and it's also the thing of like, how do you create 
the public? What what is the public? How do you create that as an active sort of force? There's lots of debates around that. I know it's all around populism and all these sorts of things. But with with a commons, like a commons is not is not something that exists outside the community of commoners who do the the work of commoning, if you know what I mean, right? So you have to actively form this this group of commoners, basically. Another another word we could use is community, and that's a really loosely used word that's thrown about everywhere. But with a commons, you know, that community starts to have some boundaries around it, but they're not predetermined boundaries. So whoever does the work of the common, whoever joins in the governance, do you know what I mean? Yeah, but it, until you pin it down to a physical space, I kind of... It doesn't necessarily make any sense well, to me. Well, yeah, but okay, so the, with the commons, it's not a physical space. It's some sort of resource or asset, right? That's what you common. You know, it's a common governance of some sort of resource or, or asset. So that could be a that could be a workers' co-op. So the Latin village is really interesting about your discussion about migration, Jeremy, because uh, the, the the majority of the, the reason it's called the Latin village is because it's, it's a real centre of the Latin American community in London. Um, and because it's because people bring their own traditions and they bring their own traditions of struggle, and because this group have had to struggle against developers for 17 years, you'd say they've got a really highly developed, cohesive idea of what they want to do. You know, And some of the other projects we've worked with haven't quite got that. They, they're having to do more work in order to form these sort of democratic structures, if you know what I mean. In fact, some of the people involved in the Latin village, they trace back there the, fo- the forms of how they organise to like Mayan forms, the traditional Mayan forms of community organising that go back sort of thousands of years, basically. So that's a distinction between the commons and the public, perhaps. But the point is that there's what we're trying to say is that there's a circulation between those things. You can't put everything into the commons, right? And so the public role in this public common partnership is to bring in all of the the, the things that exist outside this community. Say, look, you've got to follow, you've got to follow these these other interests that aren't included in the people in your in your co-op, right? You've got to, you know, who's going to sort of bring in concerns around resource limitation etc at the moment it's the public the public don't do a very good job of that the public needs reforming and democratizing as well uh, but yeah but we start with the with the with the commons in that i think we should definitely play a song from my favorite decade the 90s babylon zoo spaceman because it is such a weird song and i love it um and yeah not a lot of people listen to the lyrics but it does have the lyrics in it images of fascist votes beam me up because I can't breathe which I think is related to what we've been talking about I wanted to say something just in, res- in response to your point, Nadia, about how people, people in neoliberal capitalist realist Britain, lots of people anyway, finding it very difficult to think of themselves even as members of the public, never mind as, you know, participants in a commons. Although, you know, on an abstract level, some might say that, you know, that in, in some ways people find it easier to think of themselves as a commons because they're on social media all the time. They're in this kind of abstract space of interrelation. And it's in some ways you might even say it's harder. I'm actually speculating one reason you're kind of understandably so reacting quite negatively against that 
idea of differentiating public and commons is uh, you could take the argument even further and say it's the public that's really been attached like new new forms of commons have emerged over the past 30 years because they've had to because capital has had to sort of enable them so that it can exploit them and in the forms of things like social media and it's the fact that they don't their sort of social media platforms i think are sort of commons but they're not really public or they don't really they don't behave in the way we think public spaces should behave they're street fights that you can't close down it's like a yeah. brawl outside a brawl outside a pub that never ends like that's what it's like on twitter the problem we've got is that i think you're pointing to is indeed the problem of the public and i think you know the issue of public space is obviously kind of central to how we think about just what it means to have a public what it means to be in the public and you know, how the- people react to defending things like really fantastic public buildings being under threat of demolition or the latin village or whatever it's really like you know it's it's central to whether people are going to act on that right yeah i think you're right well i think you can we've talked about kill the bill on the show and and you know kill the kill the bill is really addressing a, ma- a massive attack on the freedom of assembly and it's something that came up when we were talking about and making preparations for this show that there's a really weak tradition of defending freedom of assembly in this country, I think. You know, it's just, it's really important to understand that in most countries with a liberal democratic constitutional government, which which we don't even have, uh, there is an enshrined constitutional right to some form of freedom of assembly. It's just, it's just considered normal that there has to be some basic legal protection and some basic limit on how far government or state authorities can say people cannot gather there and in this country we have and this is this predates neoliberalism in my view in my view this goes back to the to the fact that a sort of hobbesian form of liberalism is sort of normative in in english political culture Mm. you know for centuries really that you know we have such a kind of privatized individualized idea of what freedom means that people do find this difficult to conceptualize they People can understand the idea that the cops and anyone else shouldn't be allowed to come in your house. But the idea that actually one of your rights should be to gather with other people in public spaces, like people just don't, you know, people find this quite hard. I think even a lot of, I think people find this quite hard to sort of get it to really. So we don't have the language for it. It's not part, it's not one of, it's not one of the phraseologies that's kind of like wielded out along with other things like even on the left like i think you're completely right i think even the phrase like freedom of assembly it's not really talked about in those terms i mean i always remember this i remember the the debates around the hunting the banning of fox hunting in the 90s and thinking about this that and this is not a popular thing to say at all but i was always i've always been very uncomfortable with how people on the left just you know just all got on board with banning fox hunting because from an animal protection point of view, it's completely trivial. You know, you, you care about animals suffering, bam, factory farms, shut down all chicken batteries, you know, shut them down tomorrow. But people were really happy to ban it because basically most people in Britain just thought it was a bunch of toffs doing something they disapproved of. And I thought, and that, and that just came a couple of years after the Criminal Justice Act. And that, again, that was just, oh, it's a bunch of kids, you know, doing something we don't really want to do or approve of, ban it. For me, that really... You know, was the the greatest example of what you're talking about because in most countries like in france for example france is always a really a really good contrast because they've got such strong freedom of assembly laws and the freedom of assembly laws in france are why they couldn't ban raves a lot of people involved in like the 90s free party scene ended up moving to france like a lot of them are still there 
putting on raves and uh, annoying farmers in, you know, southwest France. And why are we not doing an ACFM from there right now? Uh, <laughs> I did not know this. <laughs> They're all that. Well, the, the music. Do you not you, like I, the sound system? You wouldn't like the music. <laughs> How do you know? I don't, I, I don't think Is it so. jazz? No, it's just very, very hard. It's super it's the hard. Oppos- it's the opposite it's, of it's jazz. It's jazz, yeah. It's very, very hard. How do you know techno. what I like? I like a lot of techno, man. We haven't played any. Oh, you say, how do I know? I'm not, I might be wrong, but it's not like I've got no basis for knowing. We've been talking about music for a while. Now we're going to have to play some technoval music. <laughs> you want us to play hardcore technoval? <laughs> I think it'll be good. is should people be allowed to like whether it's frolic roam whatever in wide open spaces and in cities yes oh yeah we're pro frolic on this podcast there's no doubt about it and in derelict buildings and maybe in occupied buildings as well but that, but all of that comes down to to like who controls this land right who owns this land which is like a huge problem yeah. in the uk and huge parts of cities yeah yeah, go no, on, yeah because it's because it's massively centralized like you know especially when you get outside of cities yeah it's massively centralized who who owns it centralized as in you know very few people own most of the most of the land do they have privatized squares in other countries like they do in the uk that's a very good question because you know you think about you think about a square as a public space or at least i think about it as a public space you know well it was the movement of the squares wasn't it the whole the the the, the, the pseudo occupy uh, movement the movement of the squares is because that would be the natural place for politics to happen place. yeah yeah whereas if you try to do that outside king's cross the new place that they've built in london king's cross that I mean you, you'll get a whole bunch of private i said bunch there that sounds very american a whole group of private security guards coming towards you because it looks like a public space, but it's not. And I think that's really insidious and also really interesting about how people, whether that makes any difference to, to people walking through it. London still does have a symbolic centre, a public centre, which is the public square of Trafalgar Square. But basically after that became a really, inte- you know, that became the site of various kind of fierce contestations between protesters and police from the 80s onwards. I mean, they've never been able to actually sort of close off access to Trafalgar Square, but there's been a real prol- proliferation of these highly corporate, you know, sort of faux, I would say sort not sort of postmodern faux, sort of vaguely neo-Georgian squares in different parts of London in places like you know all, all around the the expanding border of the financial districts really and and they connect to a, tr- a tradition in in London where there are still there are a few there have been for hundreds of years like private squares so there are a few places where you're just walking around a neighborhood and you come across a little square like a, there's a little park inside it um, and it's got a gate and it's got a lock and only residents of that area who, who you know, will basically all be millionaires are allowed to have a key to the lock. 
So that, I mean, that is something that goes back in London, actually. And it's something that's always been kind of weird and alienating in London, like the presence of those private squares. But Granary Square behind King's Cross is not, is not, does not have a lock or a key. You can go and sit in the restaurants and spend money. Yeah. And it's very nice on a sunny day. But then, you know, if you, it's right next to the Eurostar. And if you suddenly started, if there was a demo or anything outside one of the companies and people would behave very differently. There was a series of um, protests in the 70s, wasn't there, where people would take down the, the fencing. Uh, I can't remember where that was now. It was in London somewhere. Around <laughs> um, one of the squares, the private squares. Yeah, yeah. and I like to, to turn it into a play area. I thought one of the things I've always found fascinating was um, the sort of the, the British sort of uh, equivalent of the Red Army fractions, the, the Angry Brigade, uh, who, who did some, some bombings in the, in, in the 1970s, so they didn't, they didn't kill anybody. Uh, but they did some bombings and got arrested for it. Like one of the things they were really, really militantly doing at the same time as doing these bombings was setting up play groups and um, play areas for kids. It, uh, for some reason, it seemed to r- one rolled onto another. I think it's quite a good model, actually. Armed play groups is probably the way forward. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> bombs and play. Well, like the adventure, yeah. the adventure playground movement was associated with yeah. the left. It was associated with the. It was seen as a symbol of the municipal mm. left. The building of the so-called adventure playgrounds, like big playgrounds, like lots of stuff for kids to climb over. I remember my mum had a job where they had this big, this big double decker called the play bus, and she'd drive round the valleys, set up, and so kids could come on and play. And it was seen as sort of part of a left, allowing kids to play, facilitating kids to play, was seen as part of a left struggle. The great period for kind of outer space themed songs, you know, rock and pop songs, is obviously the early seventies. Is the period following the moon landings. One we should really mention would be, well, Hawkwind, the great progenitors, British progenitors of an entire sub-genre referred to as space rock. And uh, there aren't many other, there weren't really many other bands who ever got labelled that way. The Hawkwind are a sort of institution in themselves. They're the nearest British equivalent to the Grateful Dead, institutionally and culturally, if not sonically. And... My favourite track from their classic album, In Search of Space, is a track called You Shouldn't Do That, which is just a kind of heavy uh, rock space trip. Another aspect that's really important to talk about when we talk about physical space and the built environment and, you know, streets and commuting and where we go and come back from in our in our daily lives is is not just whether people see those spaces as public when they move through them or whether they feel like they belong to someone else, but also the, the very literal safety, like whether people are safe in those spaces or not and whether those spaces are built in a specific way that people are able to feel safe um, or not. And obviously a big part of this is, you know, how spaces affect 50% of the population, i.e. women, uh, especially women at night, because um, as I'm sure most of our listeners are, are aware, you know, the vast majority of women are constantly making, you know, every one of us 
uh, are making cal- calculations of like wh- where we're going to go and how we come back and whether it's going to be safe to step out of our door and at this time of night and not depending on what spaces are actually stepping into. So I think we wanted to talk a little bit about um, Reclaim the Night here as well, which, as I understand it, is a is a movement to say, no, actually, women are not going to stay at home for our safety. Like, we want to be able to be on the streets as, you know, arguably, like, citizens or people of these cities and spaces and claim them for our own. That that just makes me think, actually, about the discussion we were having earlier about how is the public formed. That's partly how it's formed, isn't it, basically? Who is allowed to access public spaces and when and whose interests are taken into account over others. So that's where the Reclaim the, the, the Night it developed in 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 Leeds as a reaction to this bungled police uh, investigation into the Yorkshire Ripper murders, and, and so the police said women should uh, sh- women shouldn't go out at night, um, or, or should only be accompanied by a man or something like that when they, when they go out. And like it does beg the question: Well, hang on, if you're going to ban women from from going out at night, the women are not the ones who are doing the attacking. Why don't you ban men? Was was the argument? Yeah, quite right. But I think it, it's because of what it symbolises. It, it's because of what that, that you know, whether it was the police in, in the Yorkshire Ripper case or whether the Sarah Everard ca- case having that reaction, all that did was epitomised the conversations that we as women are having all of the time. You know, when your mum or your female friend says, oh, don't go out at night or like maybe take a taxi or like, you know, we're constantly, constantly in a situation where our friends are saying, text me when you get home like a rare men probably don't have that experience whereas I think most women your friends will say text me when I get home but once an authority says that then it kind of brings it to fore that even though it's not illegal so this is not the same as a, a public space actually being private and you're not allowed to be there or there being a lock on the door it's the invisible boundaries of day and night that's, you know, stop women being able to move around it in a certain way because of how some men behave, or also is the case with, you know, postcode wars and gang warfare as well. So it's not just about women, there are other groups in society as well, where there aren't actual laws, but there are there are boundaries which which affect how people move around those spaces and how they feel about their lives and how what the boundaries are another form of the non-literal boundaries in terms of how they can live their lives and what they can do. I, I just never really thought about it before that it is actually just a negotiation about who counts as the public, isn't it? Your access to public space is like, that, that's the absolute critical one. And that negotiation, that sounds like a nice thing. Obviously that negotiation is riddled with violence basically and, and decisions about whose interest counts. Because of course there's things you can do just to, to public space to increase safety. You could prioritise that by through lighting, et cetera, et cetera, and, and these sorts of things. It then changes how you live your life and it changes your subjectivity and it changes your 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 ability to live because you, you, because of those boundaries. But it also makes me think about why, why uh, neo-Nazis and fascists are so... Like the, the the most common right right back through history, the most common Nazi tactic is to march through through a migrant area or or an area or a, perhaps a leftist area. It's about that that claiming of space, and like the whole point of that, of course, is the threat of violence to be conducted against those who they don't want to belong to the public or to have access to public space. 
No, it is. It's really important, and I think that you know, and the you know, I mean, definitely Plan C and other other groups on the left, uh, you know, po points when we were involved, were saying we shouldn't be doing A to B marches in central London. We should be in in communities because what it does is it's a show of strength, and if it's a show of strength by the right, that can have a huge psychological effect. If it's a show of strength by the left, it can also have a, a strong psychological effect, but hopefully with a different outcome. Yeah, to extend. To extend who's counted into, extend, the, into the yeah, public. rather than curtail, yeah. yeah, exactly. Let's talk about outer space. What do we think about outer space? I mean, it's a new, it's back in the news, isn't it? After quite a long time, without it really being a kind of issue that got talked about very much because nobody was going there. The standard account of why millionaires are, are fascinated with going into space is because. They're thinking about, they're dreaming of just escaping planet Earth rather than save planet Earth from climate catastrophe. They're dreaming of just escaping from it. So, so it's really in our minds at the moment because Jeff Bezos went up in a penis-shaped rocket. And, um, are there any rockets that are not penis-shaped? So, well, it was very penis-shaped. It was more penis-shaped than most rockets. Um, <laughs> honestly, we'll put a picture of it up on the... <laughs> on the show notes. Yeah. Okay. Um Richard Branson went up in a rocket, and there's obviously there is some sort of willy waving competition about you know basically but these billionaires have got too much money. Do you know what I mean? But when Jeff Bezos came back, he said, "Look, this is the this is how we solve climate change. We can put all of our polluting industries into space." He says, and that will that will solve the problem of climate change. Like that's just not going to happen. There's absolutely no way that that is going to happen. Like it's just not going to happen. It's just absolutely impossible. And Jeff Bezos does not believe it's going to happen. So what's going on? It, there is something going on about it's. It's like a fantasy, you know, that imaginary connection to to, to space. That the way we think about space has sort of changed in uh, over the years. And at the moment, it's absolutely connected to these two massive crises: climate change. And huge, huge inequality. Those two crises are obviously linked in our heads. There's some sort of thing going on where, where, where space is now seen as this place where we can sort of put our waste. It, it, it's a, or perhaps it's like you know, perhaps it's a second chance. We can go and we can go and colonize Mars, etc. I think it's both things. It's a fantasy, and a, it's, it's po poised as a fantasy and a solution. And I think it sits in the brain as both things at the same time. Like, well, maybe, well, maybe. There can be hope here. Yeah, but I just don't think anyone believes it. They? Uh, but but yeah, there's something odd going on anyway, basically. But it's also, I think it's it's interesting to think about like the way, the role that outer space has played in people's imaginary in the past, and what an absolutely impoverished version of of uh, the space race we've got going on now. Do you know? There's a big tradition of like like left wing people thinking about space, or, or socialists and communists thinking about space. There was a big sort of Russian cosmism movement around the time of the Russian Revolution. Just after the Russian Revolution, a guy called Bogdanov wrote this um, Bog Bogdanov, isn't it? Bogdanov wrote this book called Red Star, which imagines a, a communist a communist civilization on Mars. Basically, we do like our star symbols on the left. The whole concept of pro early 20th century, late 19th century, it would make sense that space was kind of on the horizon, very literally, in terms of people thinking, well, where, where, is, where is socialism going to take us next? Yeah. They were thinking that this is actually a left project. Yeah. And then the Cold War happened, and then it kind of switched forces, didn't it? 
I don't know. It's an interesting one, actually. Uh, David Graeber's got this great argument where he says that the the moon landings were the greatest achievement of the Soviet Union, and it's a, it's a nice argument because basically what he's saying is that 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 model of 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 a of a project, obviously, you're right. The space race, early space race, is tied up with the Cold War, and the, they're basically wanting to develop ballistic missiles to carry nuclear weapons and going into space is sort of a, pro- a byproduct of that. But going to the moon is something else. That's going beyond that. That's sort of like a project which is not based around, you know, economic production or the profit motive in any way, really. There's some spin-off effects, spin-off projects that come about, you know, um, a non-stick frying pans, etc. But that's a very expensive way to get non-stick frying pans <laughs> going to the moon. And so David Graeber argues wow. that, like, that basically the, the, the USA gets infected by that sort of like non-profit-based big, big, big projects that, that are actually more characteristics of the things that were driving the Soviet Union and the US gets off inflected by that in a way. That's a good argument to use against Mariana Mazzucatu, who, who Pooja mentioned actually in the in the microdose and she talked about Mariana Mazzucatu's latest book. She talks about the moonshot as like the model that we should, that we should follow. That's why how we should reorientate economics. Basically, capitalist economics should be reorientated around that 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 era. But of course, what was driving that era was something else. You know, it was like this Cold War, this sort of Soviet Union as as this comparable, threatening um, economic system, which seemed to be delivering quite a lot. You know, up until the late nineteen sixties. Uh, seemed to be a competitor to the US and in fact be, seemed to be doing things better than the US and the symbol of that was Sputnik going around the first uh, satellite etc you can't just pluck this out of thin air the reason that capitalism does these things which are not the normal f- way in which capitalism relates to technology which is like small efficiencies etc rather than these really big big projects you know there are very very specific social forces driving that so where are the social forces coming from now I mean, for me as well, I mean, I've got a harder political economy reading of what the whole space, the the capitalist new space race is about, really, which it is literally just, it is just a way of burning up capital rather than reinvesting it in infrastructure or in, in wages or it's historically, it's a problem for capitalists at certain stages of development or certain points in the economic cycles that they've got to you know capital has to be destroyed has to be liquidated or has to be expended otherwise you end up you know you end up inadvertently you're doing something that will empower it will empower workers and consumers and um and i think it is you know they they have all this profit and rather than invest it in anything that might risk empowering those other groups they're just shitting it into space <laughs> yeah no i agree yeah, there is a uh, well, yeah because what's the what's the normal way in which capital gets destroyed not the normal way but yeah war, war, war yeah so perhaps um having a load of uh, uh billionaires spunking their uh, their cash up by a massive penis shaped um, <laughs> rockets perhaps that's preferable <laughs> Uh, what about the song "Don't Fence Me In" uh, by uh, by a lot of people? But I suppose the most famous version is by Roy Robert Rogers. So that's, and in fact, Roy Rogers is the singing cowboy, isn't he? And it's like a cowboy song, and so it's that "Give me land, lots of land, don't fence me in." It's sort of like the imaginative. It speaks to the imaginative role that the Western frontier has played in in the U.S.'s conception of space. Really, this 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 there's this empty space. It's been emptied, people. It's been emptied by uh, uh, by genocide, but. Let's skip over that. This is wide empty space that you can go to. Uh, and of course, like that, in some ways, that plays into this idea of outer space as the frontier. That's why perhaps, 
we have the billionaires going into outer space who see themselves as some sort of like rugged frontiersmen. I don't know. It's a nice song anyway. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off forever, but I ask you please. It's a particular moment when the cowboy is being conceptualized as a sort of um, antidote to the excessive kind of conformism of an increasingly bureaucratic type of industrial society. So it's it's sort of completely imaginary. It's the it's the cowboy not as a kind of entrepreneurial rancher or a colonial, you know, death dealer, but just as a kind of Deleuzean nomad. The song that really the most relates to our present moment of space exploration where we have the billionaires in space is uh, the song, well, actually probably like a poem, the song by Gil Scott Heron called White is on the Moon. It, it starts with this, a rat done bit my sister, but white is on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bill, but white is on the moon. And it's so it's this idea that like all of this money has been wasted on 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 this moonshot, on, the, on space, when there's all these problems that haven't been that haven't been addressed on Earth. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. You know, the man just up my rent last night because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. Now, that's really relevant, obviously, right? That's really relevant uh, to the situation we're in now where we've got all of these problems on Earth, climate change, all these resources that need to be that need to be put into those. And where are those resources going? They're going into space on these sort of vanity missions, etc. In fact, I think the song is more relevant now than when Gil Scott Heron first wrote it because uh, I've got a very big soft spot for the moon landings, <laughs> uh, uh, even though you may not be able to justify it in terms of, those resources should have gone somewhere else it's probably a good argument but like it still had this expansive you know that that, that humankind could be bigger that's such promethean 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 yeah but that's just not the case with jeff bezos wanking off in space in his giant penis rocket so and what about the what is the future of public space do we think after especially covid because it's really obviously covid has really changed our relationship to space Massively. I mean, it's been all about not traveling, not moving. What? Not getting into the same space as other people, basically, isn't it? I can't wait to party. I know I say this every single... I can't wait for a rave. I know I say this every single episode. But, you know, I mean, I still think that's going to happen. I think people... It's And I said this on I said this on the Pooja uh, Microdose. Um, I think it's so fundamental to human existence. Okay, maybe it isn't fundamental... I would, I would argue, and no, actually, it is fundamental to to twenty first century life that human human beings congregate and have conversations with people who are not of your household or your family. Like it's yeah. so important, you have to have those discussions. Or, or even it, it, the thing that we're missing is spaces where you can discuss with people you don't know and people who who aren't like you. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's the most important element of like politics basically. 
uh, and that's what we've been missing. That's what that's been separate. That's what the high street was. One of the one example of pub of the public because you know the, it's, the pubs aren't really public, are they? They're sort of private, privately owned public spaces. But then becoming commons is this phenomenon of local communities buying their own pubs, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a big question. Do we think? I mean, do we think the high street is coming back? And this really came up in the interview with Pooja. Is is the high street going to come back? And do we want it to? Uh, well, we that the high street is as we've as we've known it. It's probably dead, I think, because I think you know the high street is primarily thought of as a place of of retail, and I think that's probably not going to come back, not to the same extent. There's there's a huge debate at the moment about what, what what you do with high streets and what you can, you know, give people a reason to go to them, to go into sound centres, etc. Like the only real solution, if it's not going to be about commerce, is about creating public spaces congregation yeah about it's like, be. about spaces for conviviality basically so it'll be all of the bits that we that we that, that nadia just said high streets are yeah high streets used to be about you know our shops used to be about places where you could meet people etc it's going to be all of that without the retail so then you have to work out well how how, how does this get paid for but there's also other things like it's if even even if there's not retail, there's still services, right? So we're like pro post office, pro the banks. You need high street banks, yeah. and there are some things that people are still going to buy there. But of course, like fifty, sixty percent of retailers is going to go. But you know, you, you there's all sorts of different ways that you can arrange those those kind of units so that people can have meeting spaces. That's the thing that we need. What about libraries? All the libraries that have been shut, bring out bring back libraries. You know. Even mini ones. Yeah, party like spaces, clubs. Party spaces, little DJ booths, mini, mini, mini bars and pubs. Like, come on, you could, we, people can do it. If you, the list, just listeners to the show alone could come up with enough ideas to just like make it work. We just need Kia's municipalism, whatever it is, public, public commons. commons partnerships. Yeah, no, I agree. We need, some, we need some acid public common partnerships. There's no doubt about it. We are saying once again, reclaim the city. <laughs> yeah, 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 but also the small towns, right? And the village. Yes. To say it's like you know, high streets everywhere. High street, the high street in a village is really important. It is, it's a strange moment, though, isn't it? Because basically, we've been we've been forced in, by COVID into into our domesticated Oedipal spaces, these homes which sort of isolate us off. We've been interacting virtually, but of course, that that tends to be with people. You, what you tend to miss with that are, are those interactions with, with that you didn't expect, or interactions where you bump into somebody, or interactions with people that you don't know already. Although you do have those on Twitter, I suppose they're not very pleasant quite often. Um, uh, so we've been forced into our homes, and then you know, the at the same time, the places where which were sort of those private public spaces are in a state of collapse. So you know, there's this desperate need to get out of our houses and create, you know, to to get to get that conviviality, those spaces of conviviality again. So I think this is a great moment to try to to try to do that. Basically, I mean, loads of people are still going to the pound shop. I'm going to say that, including myself. So you know, I think there's uh, it, it also like dovetails with questions around the economy as well, and. Uh, in terms of like people's economic pockets and uh, and where people buy their stuff, so until the pound shop closes down, you know, I still think they're gonna, there's going to be retail. And on that bombshell, <laughs> <laughs> this is. Actually-